You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always typical Lydia you kind of had a look in your face like I was coming into you with a little bit too much spice no no it's never too much spice you could have all the spice in arrakis and I'd be fine with it <laughs> being a Benny Jesuit witch of sorts no there's a house fly in here and it's there is what it and is. guys guys listen it's the worst <laughs> we can't kill it it's an immortal fly it's growing in power it's looking at me it looks angry that we're here like it's 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 we're in the fly's house now is how i feel it's being super fucking annoying it's being <laughs> like really really territorial and yeah it is the most annoying fly he took all the fly tricks and he's pulling them all on us oh my god like left right and fucking center on today's show we're going to be doing the 1987 film the gate this is a fan requested film And I'd like to point out, if you guys would ever like to request a movie uh, for us to do on our show, you can tweet me at WestDeadAirNipe, or you can message us on the SpotterPictures.net website, or you can go to our Facebook group, SpotterPictures slash DeadAirPodcast, and you can leave us a bunch of suggestions if you want us to do, or one very specific one, and say, like, I want it, I want it, I need it, and we'll do that movie. Uh, This one in particular is coming to us. From a podcast called Dude, How Have You Not Seen This? Now, one of our listeners, Thomas, is part of this podcast. So we didn't, I'm not sure if it's coming from Thomas specifically or if it's coming from the podcast as a whole. Yeah, it could be the guy that has seen the films as opposed to the three comics that have not seen the films that they talk about on their show. But Thomas has great taste in horror. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to guess that it's probably his influence there. Mm-hmm. He had actually requested this in Society. Yeah, as luck would have it, Bind Torture Cast is actually doing Society for their next episode. Mm-hmm. So you can tune in there and listen to someone who I think is far more equipped to talk about that particular fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that we wouldn't have super fun with it, and it is a super fun movie, and I'd love to bring that, but just go listen to Bind Torture Cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Society is a very uh, iconic, ooey-gooey body horror film from the 1980s, and it's got a lot of comedy, it's got a lot of surreal, uh, surrealist uh, shit in it, particularly towards the end. I'll always, well, everybody always remembers like that dude just melting into a pile of bodies. Like That is just so fucking weird to look at, um, but the message of Society is really fascinating, and I'd be really interested to see what our... Uh, podcast big brothers would have to say about it big brothers that's precious it's true though that's how i refer to them as like podcast big brothers they do so many uh really high like quality effect films and films with so much gore and films with like such really broad societal messages that they're used to that not that we're not but like they're very used to being able to still talk about the story instead of just being like oh my god man that's so fucking gross or isn't that so cool so they will be probably one of the better podcasts to ever cover that fucking film, for mm-hmm. sure. And uh, also what I find interesting about this is if you could you could timestamp a fan request uh, for both of us, apparently, and you could track to when these episodes get released, and you can get a pretty good idea about how long it'll take your request to go through the system, as I like to call it. 
the system. Yeah, get like, digested with this like podcast peristalsis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, perfect timing. And with doubly perfect timing. He was talking about this Canadian film I'd never heard of called The Pit. Have you ever seen that? No. Okay, it's one that I'm gonna have to seek out because I don't know if it's gonna be coming up on an episode of Bind Treasure Cast or not, but. Um, Chris had mentioned it on the show, and it's got similar parallels to The Gate in that it's a kid finds a hole in their yard or nearby, and craziness ensues. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a really good time for me to even watch this because of the fact that um, what the big buzz on uh, the internet these days with Netflix is this show, Stranger Things, which really, after I finished watching it, which is a really, really cool show, um, it really reminded me of things like The Gate. It reminded me of a whole bunch of things. Like I, I, I think that when I posted about it on Facebook, talking about Stranger Things, I described it as it was as if um, like E.T. and The Gate and Goonies and Monster Squad was put in a blender by Stephen King and David Lynch. I was waiting for the Stephen King reference because you didn't say it. Go yeah. on. And Stephen King and David Lynch put all that shit in a blender, blended it up. Well, like Steven Spielberg, like sort of nodded approvingly in the corner, like yes, yes, I approve. Uh, and then they they crap out this series and I, and not crap out in a very very good way. It's amazing and it really proves that you can have compelling horror and science fiction for with a predominantly kids. Uh, cast taking it very seriously and putting these kids in real danger and people will respond to it. You don't have to kidify things just because kids are in it. Which actually brings me to an interesting point about The Gate. Now, the original script of The Gate was actually supposed to be a lot darker. Which sounds like something I'd really like to see. Not that I don't enjoy this, that's for sure. I like The Gate just as it is, but I'd Mm -hmm. like to see this alternate universe where The Gate was super fucking dark and horrible Mm -hmm. and lots more death. Even though uh, when you're looking at... So um, uh, Michael Nankin was the person that scripted this. And originally he was actually supposed to be the director on it too. And he had talked about how he was coming from a particularly dark place in his life when he wrote The Gate. And so because of that, it was a little bit more nihilistic and a lot more bloody. And it was really this opening of The Gate was supposed to be equivalent of opening Pandora's box. And so these demons were not isolated to a singular house... Rather, it was erupting all over the neighborhood, people getting dragged from their beds, just getting ripped apart and killed. Um, He alluded to more of the the main cast dying maybe permanently as opposed to what actually happens in the film. But And he seems very pleased with what happened, but when you're presenting a script like this, especially then, you, you say, well, okay, we're doing horror movies, but it stars predominantly kids, so it can't be... We can't go for an R, right? We have to we have to make things a little lighter, a little bit more fun, and then it becomes adventure horror, which is is just like horror, except there's a little bit more um, whimsy to it, like Monster Squad, like Monster Squad, where it's serious. And like when you watch Monster Squad, you're like, holy fuck, like they're blowing people up in this fucking movie, and uh, the monsters are scary. Yeah, yeah, things I mean, are scary. The the mummy, like that. I think that the mummy in Monster Squad is like my favorite. I like the like, werewolf. Like, yeah, the werewolf looks fucking fantastic. They all look great. Yeah, they don't cheap out on any of the effects at all, at all in that film. And it's the same with The Gate, although The Gate isn't necessarily targeted at as young of an audience, I don't think. Mm, yeah. Um, when The Gate... It's weird. When you're looking at how The Gate was released and how it was um, lightened, and, uh, lightened up a little bit in tone, there's still moments in this film where you would think... There had to have been at least one 
or two mothers out there that brought their kids to see this in the theater where they probably got to a scene where they're just thinking, oh my God, what the fuck? However, there also would have been people in that same theater that were actually a little surprised that they didn't get something a little darker because this is an interesting story about how a script was originally written very dark. It was lightened up uh, and the, tonally it was lightened up because the studios wanted to produce something. But then the advertisement actually skewed it darker. It seemed like a more serious, darker horror film competing with things what even though like in the late 80s, these characters had already kind of become less than serious. But the director felt that they were kind of trying to tap into the same market that was going in droves to seeing Friday the 13th and, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Those were the big movies. They were waning by the time the late 80s were happening, but it was still understood in the consciousness of people who have money to pay for movies that this is what you want to at least advertise skew the movie towards and so if you look at the old trailer for the gate comes off that the movie's probably a lot darker than it really is yeah even on the poster the more iconic poster i see the cover for the dvd that we have today which features a kid yeah the the cover for the the is very goonies to me like it very much is oh yeah we're 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 like probably gonna have some fun with this it doesn't really strike me as super scary it kind of strikes me as demon it it doesn't seem like demons from hell are coming up to wreak havoc almost like a journey to the center of the earth type thing i haven't seen stranger things but i hear that they do a really really good job and to see something that is very steeped in the 80s and more so than i would have ever remembered well what i tell people and and i've read lots of comments so what i'm gonna say is not fucking revolutionary at all but I mean, when sometimes when you're saying things take place in the 80s, you're kind of expecting a dude to like skateboard in with a Rubik's Cube and just be like, <laughs> and just be like, you know, with like Atari carts in his hand and just be like fucking, whoa, it's totally the 80s, man. You mean totally tubular. It's yeah. totally tubular. Yeah. yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't remember if totally tubular was um, more 80s or 90s. I do know that um, I have an old X-Men comic where they introduced Jubilee as a character. And uh, she literally says, Perfecta Mundo. Perfecta Mundo. That would be a very Jubilee thing to say. I always hated Jubilee. Too <laughs> um, yeah, this is actually a pre-Simpsons usage of don't have a cow man. They really do. He says, don't have a cow man. Straight face, too. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of like kid insults getting tossed around this movie. Oh, yeah. It's salty. It's oh. salty. Oh it's not too, too salty. You know what I mean? It's still PG. At the, for at the time, it's still mm-hmm. definitely PG. It still hits that sort of Gremlins level. Gremlins, that's another, yeah, that's another one. And I would almost argue that, like, Gremlins is a lot more serious in some places than even The Gate is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Although The Gate, like, when you look at it, it really is, like, hard horror themes that they're dealing with, with these sacrifices things coming up from the ground accidental fucking ritual being performed which is always a thing that i really like in horror Mm -hmm. when people accidentally perform a ritual Mm -hmm. that summons demons from hell yeah and the minions are pretty fucking feral and scary and some of their little powers because i don't know like sometimes it's hard to figure out if that's just their physiology or if that's a power invested in them by the devil or what Mm -hmm. but they're pretty fucking scary Mm mm-hmm it's it's true. They they seem to have at least on some level uh, a a bit of like illusionary magic, transmogrification magic, stuff like that. This is a very nerdy like D and D thing that I just said, but <laughs> um, but they definitely have things like that going on for them. 
and uh he's on the mic <laughs> the fly is on the microphone oh my god i'm gonna kill everything that's not a fly and then kill the fly <laughs> i can just picture my house laid to waste like at the end of the gate and and, and like fly and the fly is like buzzing around like lands on my face i'm just like uh i hate the world before we get into the movie we're gonna backtrack a little bit you went to Dark Carnival a couple weeks ago. I totally did. And I, met, I forgot to mention, I totally got so deeply into Blood Widow last week yeah. that I totally forgot. But yeah. it's, it's like it happened yesterday. So yeah. here we are. Yeah, it was really fun. It is convention season. And that is exactly why we took a week off. It would have made more sense to apologize for missing a week last week. But here we are. Yeah, sometimes um, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's summertime. It's con season. Mm-hmm. We both have reasons to attend conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're usually pretty good at doubling up, but sometimes just on yeah. time. And it was the first year that the Rue Morgue magazine has broken off from the Fan Expo umbrella, and they've had their own convention, which is an unconventional convention in that the Dark Carnival theme and name does have some merit in that there were sideshow things. I took a panel on... A casual taxidermy. And I just like saying casual taxidermy because it's just casual. It's not serious taxidermy. It's just casual. It's not formal taxidermy where all the animals that you sew up have like little suits and tuxedos and shit. No, but that it, it, there was um, George Ratmero and it was a, like a, a stuffed rat that was dressed up as George A. Romero. So it was really cute. <laughs> so it's kind of casual in, in mood, right? Gotcha, gotcha. And we got to all gather up around the girl that was running the panel and I was sitting like from media away and snapping pictures and asking silly questions like, what do you do with his little paws? And she was referring to his fur as his pajamas and stuff. So it was really fun. It was super fun. But the entire convention itself was very fun. It was nice to see a lot of uh, Rue Morgan, Rue Morgan affiliates that mm-hmm. I know and listen to a panel on podcasting, which is something that has been at events I've always missed a panel like that. Do you learn anything? Do we like? Do you have like? Anything? Do you have like tricks that we can like make this show actually better? Like, because that's what I'd be like. I'd, like I'd go to a podcast panel and people are like Wes, you have a podcast. I'm like, I know. I want a better podcast. I hope I learn something. That's why I attended all the writing things. Like I didn't go as a panelist mm-hmm. for the first time in a while. A long mm-hmm. like probably four years. Mm-hmm. I've never attended a convention. Probably five years. I've never attended a convention where I wasn't working. Or... I've never seen you at a convention where you weren't part of, uh, you were at, like had a table or were doing something. I've literally never attended a convention where I wasn't yeah. um, working in, in some regard. But this was the first time for me and I attended all the writing things for that exact reason. As far as the podcast panel, I learned that um, podcasters are fucking cool people, but I already knew that. And that we're doing pretty good. Because there was a lot of tips for like beginning podcasters, which I don't close my ears on. You know, I definitely yeah. listen to. Because you never know, we, maybe we have bad habits. Yeah. That, that we don't know what we're doing when it comes to writing and stuff. But we're doing we're doing pretty good. You know, I didn't know I didn't learn a hell of a lot. <laughs> uh, okay. Aside from just being able to sit back and listen to others' experience, which is just as valuable, whether you learn what you're doing right or wrong, mm-hmm. is moot when you're enjoying listening to the experience of others. And who knows, maybe some of it'll percolate in, but. All very different shows and podcasts. One is Bloodbath and Beyond have a YouTube show, Mm -hmm. which sort of transfers. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other was, of course, Faculty of Horror. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned Faculty of Horror a few times on the show. Well, you have. Yeah, I listen to them relentlessly. Yeah. Relentlessly. Mm -hmm. I'm actually Mm -hmm. uh, into a new podcast. And maybe this will be a regular thing on our show where I go on about what podcasts I listen to. Aside from Bind Torture Cast, this is horror and Faculty of Horror, which I listen to Mm -hmm. regularly. Um, The Outer Dark 
has left their podcast host and is now under the This Is Horror umbrella. So for authors and writers and fans of literary horror out there, The Outer Dark has had a lot of really cool authors on it. And that's now one of my favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about uh, before how you have felt that there, in terms of literary horror podcasts, you don't really have a lot to choose from. No. So it's always good to know that there's more out there. The Horror of Nachos and Hamantaschen does kind of dip their toe in that, Mm -hmm. their collective toes. Um, But this is more of a dedicated podcast. Yeah, it definitely is, because with Nachos and Hamantaschen, they cover films and books and games from time to time, because they did that Doom episode, and they're going to cover me. And I don't know why, because they're slumming it with me. I'll be on an episode (laughs) in the next two, three weeks or so. It'll Mm -hmm. air. So I'll let you guys know. And if you guys um, are not convinced that old typical Lydia is just a little overachiever, uh, somebody won an award when they were at the Dark Carnival. Oh, should have forgot. <laughs> didn't they? Somebody, did. somebody went to a convention with no intention of writing anything and then found out there was a writing competition, wrote something on a scrawling napkin, I'm imagining, in a bathroom five minutes before the contest started and won the whole thing. On my laptop at Starbucks at 9 in the morning, but close, very close. Actually, I wrote it in my notebook, this very notebook that I've got my Blood Widow notes and my Gate notes in. Um, HIV. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And now for a a, a more, like, somber announcement on our show. (laughs) I actually scribbled it out between the hours of 1.30 a.m. and 2.30 a.m. the day before. That's just how writers roll sometimes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You never know when inspiration is going to strike you. Yeah, it was it was a fun story. It was a story that's been on my mind a lot. Like, I meant to write this story, and I just never had a venue for it, and I didn't know how it was going to come out, and I didn't know, you know, and it just came out. So it worked out really well for that particular story, and it worked out really well for the listeners because everyone seemed to enjoy it very much, and it worked out well for me because I got to do a reading, which I always do enjoy reading no matter how much I complain about it or mm-hmm. shake and quiver while I'm up there and then complain about my performance and all of those things aside. I do actually really enjoy live reading, and I think mm. there should be more events in every city, and people should seek out authors reading horror in their cities because horror has an extra campfire story quality just by genre nature alone that... It's enrapturing. It's very, very active listening that you're doing when you're listening to people read horror, especially a seasoned author that is a seasoned speaker as well, right? Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of fun doing that and won and got all kinds of cool movies and a copy of the book Psycho Sanitarium, which I'm very excited to get to in my to-read list. I wish I could just crack it open, but I have other books I need to read. And quite a few really cool movies, including... Deathgasm and The Barons, which I hadn't seen, and only two weeks earlier I'd been seeking out a copy of The Barons, and I really, really enjoyed that. So, like, super thanks to Monica, for sure, from Rumorg and Rumorg Magazine for having that particular competition, which was a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. But No yeah. surprise to me that you won it, though. The thing I like the most about that convention is I don't know Dave Alexander or Rodrigo Godinho personally. Yeah. Yeah. But I do know them to see them, like many fans of the magazine and horror fans do. They were never without a smile on their face. They were present, you know, every half hour you could look around and see one of them in the room. They were very present. They seemed to be in good spirits, and they were very attentive from what I understand. 
And like I said, they always had a smile on their face, which is mm-hmm. a really good sign when someone's running a two-day convention. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so enough about Dark Carnival. That was super crazy fun. And hopefully if there's anyone listening that attended, let me know what kind of experience you had. Yeah, please do. Um, the more we talk about Dark Carnival, um, the more we get attention to horror-dedicated conventions, which uh, are a bit of a rarity. So, you know, the, the more the better. And it's Canadian horror. They're very Canadian-centric, being a Canadian magazine. One of the few successful horror magazines that that happens mm-hmm. to be Canadian magazines. So yay for us. Mm-hmm. Um, Canadian horror is something that sometimes doesn't get enough attention. But when it does, with things like The Gate, My Bloody Valentine, some of the films that we've covered and some of the films that we're planning on covering in the future mm-hmm. are just mind-bendingly good. I mean, the gate does have its goony moments and stuff, but I think I think it's really fucking good. Yeah, me too. I think it's it's unsung. It's a hidden gem sometimes. Mm-hmm. When people are talking about um, kid adventure movies, like with horror elements to it, scary stuff, or kids doing stuff, movies in the nineteen eighties, you it, it the gate will get mentioned the least often, ahead of other ones that are a little bit more comedic or had a little bit bigger of budget or left a more uh, lasting impact. Like It and Monster Squad. Like it going from the Monster very, Squad. very comedic to the very serious and scary, the thing that gives people nightmares and why so many people claim to be afraid of clowns and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So It had a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Although it was a little, like, quite a bit later in the game. It's probably not even uh, in the me, 80s. <laughs> they're filming, uh, they're filming uh, the current It movie in uh, a co-worker's hometown. Uh, and he he um, asked me. He's like, Wes, what do you think if we just like drove to my hometown and tried to get on the set of it as like an extra or something? I'd be like, Do you want to fucking do that? Because I'll fucking do that. Like, I would fucking do that. Yeah, are you kidding me? I was like, I'll, I could just I could be a fucking slack jawed uh, townie, just like. Well, apparently they did an amazing job transforming it into Dairy Maine, so he could even go under the pretense of I want to see my hometown transformed into Dairy Maine. Like I know, and just probably be recruited on in. Like when yeah. the kids in the hall did a bunch of filming in North Bay. Yeah, a lot of extras were just pulled from the community. They had large calls for extras in the community. Yeah, I was like, I can walk past. I can walk past a camera and not look at it. Give me a job. Yeah, easy, <laughs> done. I'm your girl. I'm your girl. Didn't you say there was something going on this week? It's not really something that I did this week, but it's something that's happening this week. And by the time people have this episode in their little tiny ears, they can have other things in their little tiny ears, which is solo material from Andy Negative, who is also known as Opie Saint of Patron Saint of Plagues that does our opening and closing theme Mm -hmm. that everyone loves, Mm -hmm. especially us. But yeah, if you're in Ontario, you can hear Andy play music. It's acoustic. It's awesome. It's dark. It's horror. Mm. and yeah he'll be doing a thing outside of the band yeah yeah yeah. and uh definitely check that out if you can Andy's a sweet sweet dude and very very talented and works really really hard at his craft so he's always been the multi-instrumentalist singer songwriter behind patron saint of plagues if you hear their album as opposed to their live music it was all andy so mm-hmm. all of their concept all their songwriting all their everything and everything when you told me about it i thought that like he was going to do like a one-man band so like a big like accordion and like he would love that like, symbols on his knees and stuff. he could do those crazy like multi-necked bass and whatever guitars like he could have two guitars if he had enough arms he could do that he would totally do that and he would play that like drum thing hooked up to a leg brace and 
Oh, yeah, he would do that. He's that much of a clown. <laughs> a dark cabaret clown, no doubt. And these would be grimy, smudged <laughs> materials that he would be playing as instruments. Um, yeah, not quite that one-man band. <laughs> I've seen his acoustic stuff while Patron Saint of Plugs was still a thing. Because um, he'd sometimes still go out and do like his own solo stuff. But this is his debut solo EP. So mm-hmm. it's like an album launch. And best of luck. Shit, man. I know I'm buying one. But anyway. But anyways, on to the actual what the gate is. The idea behind the gate is that you have a young man named Glenn who wears so much track pants. <laughs> and what is he wearing? Like a racing jacket? Um, I seemed I think that the jacket that he's wearing somehow relates to him liking to launch model rockets oh. because later when him and his sister are doing it, they're wearing matching jackets. So it seems to be this is my launching a model a rocket jacket because it's got a bunch of so you have uh two little boys here you got terry and you got glenn so both of them have one thing in common they both wear jackets that have been modified with patches one has a bunch of uh metal patches and like a little uh satanic symbol the other one just has a bunch of patches on his jacket that say things like astronaut and science (laughs) <laughs> who's cooler? Just just at a glance, who's cooler? I mean, cooler to who? Cooler, cooler fuck. Cooler in general. Terry has a killer dwarf's back patch on his jean jacket, which is amazing. They're a Canadian 80s metal band. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a massive back. It's like, it's the whole back. Like, this guy must really like killer dwarfs because anybody knows in the patch culture that, like, your back patch, the biggest patch, that's your statement, man. That's like your... See, Glenn doesn't have something that tells me what he's into. He doesn't. It doesn't like tell me what sort of person he is. He like, likes science. Terry, I know he's he's a little fun. He's a little crazy. He mm-hmm. likes metal. He likes good metal, and he's Canadian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, if we're gonna talk about pre Simpsons, don't have a cowman references. <laughs> this would probably be a pre internet toggle text reference because that's how killer dwarfs did their stylized their name and logo mm-hmm. so i was pretty stoked to see some pre-internet toggle text you're such a fucking nerd i'm sorry <laughs> it's true i can't i i need a back patch it says you're such a fucking nerd <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah it's neat that they do have this like diametrically opposed jacket patch culture among the two of them mm-hmm. and our best friends not enemies the way they will be when they hit high school yeah it's true because one of them will fall into the popular crowd whereas the other one's like oh he's that weird kid that likes all that dark music i kind of feel like terry is still in that phase where he's just transmorphing into a metal kid because you know he's still got a very prim and proper haircut and he's got kind of dorky glasses and shit he's like like i called him when we were watching the show he's like a human mullet to me he's like business on the top and party at the bottom so his head is all business like you know like if you look at his his head you're like eh, you know probably middle management insurance guy but you look at his his lower body and he's all decked out in his uh metalhead clothes it's cool they mentioned briefly that terry has that Terry's mother had died recently. Is that their reasoning for the fact that he likes dark metal music now? Well, it's Glenn's dad's reasoning for it, and that's really unfortunate, and I would call shenanigans on that sort of reason. Well, I don't understand. Like, I don't... I literally do not understand what 
his mother dying has anything to do with what music he's listening to. That was, I think it's got to be like a huge holdover from the blaming of things like comics and entertainment for is that what bad it behavior. Is? And then we're getting into the satanic panic sort of era where the it, devil it, is the cause for everything and the devil is in everything and the devil's influencing the children and the children's <clears throat> are all, um, metalheads are all satanists, mm-hmm. obviously. Especially when you have an album by a place, a band called Sacrifix that is called The Dark Book that comes with basically a Malice Maleficarum, but like an anti-Malice Maleficarum, and has like a fucking pentagram in the center of the fucking album. Like, It's crazy to me that like this guy, because look, believe me, look, you get vinyl these days and it's like you get a beautiful cover art and the back looks great, but it's a slip cover. This this is like a book that this guy that got an album. And I was like, man, that looks fucking expensive. I've seen some pretty cool like King Diamond albums that are like that. I've seen some pretty cool book style. I can't think of many of them off the top, but my like uncle and father's <laughs> music collection definitely had some very well thought out liner notes that come in the form of a book like this. I don't know if any metal band had the budget to be doing anything like that back yeah. then. None, none I can think of aside from maybe King Diamond. Because I was thinking about like how... Alice Cooper, actually. Yeah, Alice In yeah. schools, out that you would open the album and it was like a school desk with carving and stuff like that on it. And when you open the original album, um, that had like a, a an, like, it had like a cardboard part that you could open like you're opening a school desk, like an old-fashioned school desk. And inside it was all printed with like an apple and school books and stuff and some minimal liner notes. And it came attached with a pair of girls' panties in the album that you could take out. And I guess where? I don't know what the fuck you're supposed to do with those. Um, and inside on in the slipcover, additional information. So it was like quite a, an involved fucking album just for an Alice Cooper album mm-hmm. back then. Yeah, they don't do much like that anymore. And if you, if they do do much like that anymore, it's probably like six hundred fucking dollars. I was going to say, I was like, how do you make that kind of shit and make it affordable for people? A band I follow, Creeps with a K, not the Ottawa yeah, band yeah, Creeps, but creeps, yeah. different Creeps. He actually lives in whatever town they'd film Twin Peaks in, but eludes me right now. Um, he does some really amazing box sets with beautiful things like that in full. Like he has a comic book that comes with his most recent album. And cool. so it's very involved like that still, but it costs you. This kid Terry has this amazing album, The Dark Book. Mm-hmm. God knows what he would have paid for that, having it probably imported from Germany because back then you couldn't just like hop online and have Amazon ship you shit. It was like probably an eight week wait for that album, and you probably saved up for like six years to fucking afford <laughs> it, right? So when when we first meet Glenn, he's having a bit of a nightmare. He's sort of wandering through his own house. It looks like dinner has been abruptly ended and he manages to find his way to a tall tree in his backyard where there's a tree house and there's a doll in there. And because the doll is calling to him, he hears the doll's voice and he's he's lured to it. So when he gets up there, the tree is struck by lightning and it falls over. And the next day we find that there has been an accident with the tree and the tree is getting pulled away. And as the tree is getting pulled away, a little rock, a circular rock pops out and it's a geode. Woohoo! Every kid's dream. End <laughs> of story credits. Happy day. Yeah. The uh, opening of this is really nightmarish. It's really effective actually mm-hmm. and sets you in tension right away. It, the way it's filmed is like perfect kid's nightmare, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's done very, very well. And I like that 
him walking through the house, seeing the dinner table in a state of disarray, having his family not be there, and approaching the backyard, seeing the state of the tree, everything being chaos and scary. All those sort of things, throughout the whole movie, you get sort of hits from the nightmare, but the nightmare is never recreated. It's not totally premonition, Mm -hmm. like minute-for-minute deja vu style. Mm -hmm. It's like they're having dinner the next day and everything's sat out on the table really similarly. And like later, there's another time when he approaches the backyard and all the pile of wood from the treehouse is sitting there sort of like it had been in his dream. And the pit is sort of like where the tree had fallen over in his dream. There's lots of little things about that dream that sort of like are peppered in. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really, really effective writing. It is really effective right writing. Right off the top. Yes. And because what uh, a, a general audience coming to see this movie for the first time wouldn't understand, wouldn't know is that this is going to set your tone, but then we're going to get out of this tone for a little while and we're going to tell a story. And it's not a bad thing, but I think that there is going to be some strange, creepy things peppered out through the very the first 40 minutes of the film. But what you're here to see, the demons, the, the chaos, the kids running in terror, it's about 45 minutes into the film before you get to that point. But the reason why that's not obvious or distracting or aggravating. Aggravating is because you have this opening sequence where you say to yourself, okay, I understand. This is what we're kind of in for. Then as we meet our characters, we meet uh, and we meet Terry and Glenn, who are two really good friends, very different people, but still, but like their interests, what I like about this, and maybe it is because of the fact that you're dealing with like 10, 11 year old boys and not the fact that you're dealing with. Uh, teenagers who are trying to wrestle with a social structure and trying to find just their way in the world. You have two kids that are defined by their uh, friendship with each other and not their interests. So to, to prove that, well, you can like someone and not really have anything in common with them, but they'll just sit there and they'll talk. And, and so Terry is just this guy that knows a lot about satanic ritual and a lot about uh, music and and uh, Glenn is more of a kid that knows a lot about science and and you know is a little bit more straight laced a little bit more responsible but the, but that never the boys never really argue with each other that doesn't become a a, a a point of conflict and I think that that's really unique to do and it's not and it can't be praised enough because if this would be made nowadays the fact that they have conflicting interests would be a point of discord between these two boys. So the way that you avoid that in current storytelling a lot of the times is if you give the friends the exact same interests. They're all misfits that have the same interests that have been drawn together. That's why they're friends. Therefore, they're not going to fight with each other. The only time that the the characters would fight with each other, if perhaps like an outside influence were to infiltrate that group, one person feels a connection to that, and that could be seen as a betrayal of other people. This is very much two very different boys that just love the shit out of each other, and it doesn't matter that they have nothing really in common. No, they're engaging to watch as well, because they're not hitting those like really cliche things where like one of them's trying to talk the other into the doing something bad or yeah one is bullying the other and that's why they're friends yeah like all those weird little <clears throat> cliches that don't really make much sense if you've ever been a kid and had friends and remember yeah and can translate it into writing um they sort of avoid all of those like common pitfalls no pun intended <laughs> but like the fact that they just genuinely get along works really really well especially with terry being who he is, being a bit of a latchkey kid, super responsible, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and super knowledgeable and just really an understanding sweet kid like he is a super understanding sweet kid where normally a kid like that would be painted as the devil incarnate mm-hmm. because he's into metal and he's summoning fucking demons yeah like, oops yeah <laughs> he is genuinely a good kid so when the one instance where they are sort of doing bad kid stuff where glenn wants to shoot off a rocket but his dad has said he can't because he burnt the top of the roof by accident mm-hmm. setting one off by himself he needs to have supervision and mm-hmm. terry says i'll supervise you by then you know them well enough because the story's progressed a little tiny bit that you sort of you trust this kid you don't think that he's going to be like well i'll supervise you and we're yeah. going to fuck shit up yeah it's, it's not coming him. from that place it's literally becoming mm-hmm. like you your sister won't do this because your sister is a few years older she's a teenager now she wants to go shopping and she kind of cares about boys and stuff like that and so maybe she doesn't want to stay in the backyard with you and launch rockets like maybe you would have done three or four years ago when she was still young enough to be very like homebody family oriented and would want to do something like that he's he's not being like well fuck the system let's just do it he's just like oh my friend really wants to do this thing i'll watch it like we'll be fine yeah it's not coming from a place of like yeah let's burn the house down (laughs) which you know i don't know i worry about glenn's dad glenn's dad if they would have got caught shooting off rockets and terry would have owned up and been like i said i would supervise because he said he needed supervision he'd be like this is because your mother died and i think you're confused yeah it's weird uh glenn very much comes from a household that is traditional He's got a mom, he's got a dad, he's got an older sister. They seem to be a fairly affluent family. They have a nice home. They have Christian Caucasian uh, average. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. uh, And Terry, on the other hand, seems to come from a very similar background, except for now the fact that his mother is dead. So, uh, and he's got an absentee father, which was probably not unusual, but since... If your father is away on business, you instantly imagine, oh, he's probably like some kind of like generic businessman. I have to go to like Indianapolis for the for the week or to, to do meetings or whatever. And you would have imagined, well, uh, his mother was probably present. So you go back to Terry's house. I mean, it looks like a nice house, but it's in complete disarray. It's just pizza boxes and, and old dishes and a garbage bag next to the sink. And, and uh, Terry, in a lot of ways, is kind of on his own. Yeah. So he spends a lot of time at Glenn's house, and it doesn't seem like Glenn's parents are opposed to that, but they definitely seem to think that... I have a sneaking suspicion that as years progress, it would turn into full-on, we don't like you hanging out with that kid. Unfortunately, yeah, I do too. And that's mostly because of that satanic panic thing that infiltrated from the early 80s onward when people were like, you know, this cult has been kidnapping children or this music has influenced these children to kill sad sad forget the fact that terry is clearly a good kid that genuinely likes glenn and and is of no problem to anybody and is actually doing a pretty good job taking care of himself yeah. It seems that he goes to school and he has friends and eats food. So I mean, that's basic. That's that's shit. what you that's what you want your kid to be able to at least do at that age. At yeah. 10, 11 years old, go to school, eat your food, have friends, you know, bathe, bathe. You know? Yeah. Like there's things like that, right? He can sew. He yeah. sewed all those patches on his jacket. Yeah. I mean, that's more than most kids can do at that age. Yeah. I've always wanted to get into uh, patch culture, but like I'm just so lazy. Like I have patches, where I'm just like I could sew this onto onto my vest and I'm just like oh, I could just not <laughs> that's sad really <laughs> I just like the like virgin cloth you know I'm a very clean type person I don't want like m- visually marring things or yeah. things that like well, the texture if I reached up to touch my clothing and felt the different texture mm-hmm. 
would very much ruin my entire day. I really do like my jean jacket vest thing that I have, so I don't like to fuck it up. But like at the same time, I'm like, I do have patches that I've like just gotten randomly, and I'm like, this is really nice. But I'm like, eh, I could also just not put it on. I have patches in my sewing kit. They like... just sit there. <laughs> That's where they go. Because I, I like other people's clothing and starch and bags with patches for sure in a huge way. Even like buttons and pins, I do collect them and I have them, but they're on a cork board. Mm-hmm. I think that like um, going back to the film, once we get a, a, an establishment of Glenn's parents, the family structure, etc., we learn that well, these two, uh, we learn that Glenn's parents are going to be going away for something, a vacation of some kind or a trip or whatever. And this, they're going to leave their, the older sister, Al, in charge. She's uh, going to be 16 soon. She's 15 years old. They believe that it, uh, she's uh, petitioning for more responsibility. And they basically say, well, all right, you can do it. It's kind of helpful that Glenn's grounded anyway. So yeah, Glenn's- that kind of makes it easier on her. I think that helped sway them. Glenn being grounded was because of the fact that him and Terry were digging up the yard, which I can completely relate to because I used to dig up the backyard constantly, constantly. I, my my dad used to give me like these vague threats. It's like, what if what if uh, uh, what if your cousins were were back there? They didn't see that hole that you filled in, and they freaking break their ankle, huh? What do you think about that? I was like these weird like. My favorite was always, what if you dig down and hit a hydro line and electrocute yourself? That's <laughs> why you're supposed to call before you dig, and then I'd be like, "Well, can I call?" No. Yeah. You can't call before you dig. Stop digging up the fucking backyard. I did it all the time. I was making forts for my GI Joes and shit. I was I, usually told to dig something up for some reason, <laughs> gardening and stuff, and yeah. yeah. No, I had a very GI Joe centric childhood, and so like a lot of my time was spent like making battlegrounds for my GI Joe. I like that you actually had some like you know hefty geodes that you used. I did. We uh, when we were cleaning out, uh, my grandmother uh, had a, had some storage areas in the in our back basement. We had a very large house when I was growing up, and in the back basement there was like this closeted area that was really big. It was we were never allowed to go in there because it was all your grandma's stuff. And uh, I think my grandmother was just getting rid of some of her things, and so we wanted to go through everything. There was this big old box of rocks, and there was geodes in it and stuff like that. And so, on top of digging up the backyard, I would take the geodes and and like like shove them in there. So it was like fractured alien landscapes that Cobra Commander could fuck the Joes up with. Because in my world, the Cobra Command Cobra Commander always won, as it should be. Yeah, it was the same way when I played GI Joes as well. Yeah. I think we had very very few actual G.I. Joe figures. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like Army Steves and stuff? <laughs> anyway, I'm getting so distracted. It's, you know what? I'm looking at like 10, 11 year old, uh, I'm looking at some like 10 or 11 year olds like playing in the uh, playing around and shit. Just makes me think of my own childhood. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. I have the same problem exactly because I think I was 12 when this film would have come out. Yeah. So it was definitely hitting that sweet spot of 80s horror for me as it happened and eh, terry looked like half the little boys i dated when i was 16 years old so i mean mm-hmm. yeah it probably helped influence my thinking in many ways yeah i mean i yeah. wrote a story bad shepherd that seems to be taking place in this end of town while the gate is happening across town in the suburbs like literally so yeah very influential and really hard for us to not keep meandering back about our lives and pop culture and socioeconomic climate at the time when watching a movie as rich as the gate 
It's true. I don't have a lot of memories from the 80s because I was a wee lad, but but since like I was a fairly generic kid, I feel like they're, they're kind of like hitting all those interests. And even though um, uh, Michael Nankin had specifically said that he that he originally was trying to write the script more generic and he and, and so it would appeal to the broadest audience possible. But then what he ended up doing was actually taking real life scenarios real life fears that he had real life stories that neighborhood kids would tell him about like a man in the wall like it, it, when he moved into a neighborhood and um a construction worker allegedly died in there and and so like it was ghost stories like that that used to freak him out and people responded to it very specifically and he said what it taught him was the fact that specific childhood anecdotes can ring true to people in the same way that like you look at the internet nowadays and there's so much fucking like like weird shit about that I totally relate to. Like here's a little cartoon of a big pile of black laundry and and it's like the struggle of looking for that specific black shirt in a pile of black shirts. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so that. You know what I mean? And, 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 and then it makes these, and even though you have like these passing thoughts when you're doing these things and you think, oh my God, like my life, like can you believe like the dumb like little- The person that drew that black pile of laundry really needs to learn how to fold but they thought it was like really just relating to them but then yeah. it has this massive broad audience yeah, yeah i can see that because i think of all the like weird little urban myths you heard when you were a kid especially about other houses but maybe about your own house too mm-hmm. i'm kind of glad that i hadn't been told that my house was a murder house till i was like well it was only like four years ago that <laughs> i found that out but i'm really glad i didn't know that when i was three mm-hmm. but that's the sort of like story that other people definitely could share unfortunately that they've grown up in a murder house or had all of these weird urban myths around their house or neighboring houses and stuff so everyone seems to have had unless you live a really boring sheltered life there's that for sure yeah but a lot of people do live in cities so it's a little more rich that way and a little more relatable and that's part of like writing write what you know is the thing that most writers are told Mm -hmm. to do i've heard don't write what you know because you don't know shit write what you want Mm-hmm. That's more like my favorite, but you do write what you know, and it does. Other people do relate to it. I think that like my perspective on writing, and believe me, I'm no expert, is just that write to your passions, and if and and your passions will likely coincide with what you know a lot about. But I think like for example, if you don't love world building, don't do a story that requires a lot of world building, and don't think that you have to do a story that requires a lot of world building. Tell the story that you want to tell from the perspective that you want to tell it with the things that you're interested in that will translate into the narrative. Anything else is just going to seem like you're marking time or working and you don't want to seem like that. Um, Anyways, that's a fucking big tangent. Going back to the story, when Glenn is given like the ground rules and the and as well as his older sister, who's actually in charge, they say it's, it's, it's the classic. No parties, numbers on the fridge. Give the dog the medicine. You're grounded for digging holes. You know, the things we've seen a million times. And of course, the second the the, the parents go away, we fucking open the door back to the house. It's nighttime. It's a party. It's a boy-girl party. There's crimped hair. There's bright sweaters. There's fucking 80s music going. It is a gong show. It is the most 80s party ever. And actually, they do party a million times better than the people in Blood Widow. I'm going to say that like the people in Blood Widow should have just watched the party scene from the gate and just done their best to, like, we need to convey this amount of Let's fun. emulate what these kids are doing. These fucking kids are better partiers. Yeah. And maybe it's because 
the 80s and everyone was partying in the 80s. It's true. That's what I did know about the 80s. But guess what? Don't you worry. Don't you fret. Because there's uh, they do have supervision at this teenage party. You mean like Grandpa Joe or whatever the hell his name is? Like He is a friend of theirs. Don't get me wrong. But he is definitely, <laughs> at least conservatively speaking, a decade older than everyone else there. You want to talk age gap so like I could hang out with some of my 23, 24-year-old friends. Being like 40 years old. And there's not much of a fucking difference. And we would have met during school at work. That's really it. Because I don't go anywhere else. But like, there's not a huge difference. But when you're talking like 15 years old, to this guy looks like pushing 30. He definitely looks 30 years old. Like, I I would like, if I shave my beard, I'm that guy. That's illegal. That's illegal. (laughs) I know. He's sitting there just like, we should like tell him scary stories and shit. power creepy. Yeah. He's there to, he's, oh my God. Yeah, he really creeps me out. And the more I think about it, the more creepy it is. Yeah, I remember going to a party when I was a teenager and I guess like one person um, was there, was like 20, 21 or 22 or something like that. And he had the unfortunate, um, he was losing his hair. And, And so he was a little bit older than everybody else, but then like the hairline wasn't helping anything. And I remember being like, whose fucking dad is here? And then someone informed me like, that's so-and-so's boyfriend. I felt like, <laughs> I felt really bad. Oh, but... wow. <laughs> it's more apparent when you're younger, though. That's what I'm saying. When I was in elementary school and I saw teenagers, they looked like they were 45 to me. Yeah. Now, as a, as a, a like in my 30s and I see teenagers, I'm like, they look like fucking babies. When I go and see a particular band that has uh, members that are 10 years older than me, we all sort of like homogenize. There's people that are 10 years younger than me there too. Mm -hmm. And all three age groups that span 30 fucking years Mm -hmm. can just, and don't look weird, you know, can just groove, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this guy does not groove. And I don't know why it didn't like pop for me when I was a kid watching this. Because I watched this quite a few times over and over. As well as the gate to, to the point that the two movies smooshed into one big <laughs> long movie in my head. Which is an easy mistake to make. Yeah, no, and watching uh, the second one last night, I can see exactly why. And I joked, like, well, I guess the gate must be pretty slow to start. And I wasn't kidding. It's not that it's slow. It's very engaging, and I loved every minute of watching it. But you're right with saying that the 45-minute span from the first tense scene to the next, it's, it's all just story building, character building. Luckily, they're informed and engaging and interesting characters to watch Mm -hmm. for that long, slow beginning that I had deleted in my head. Things like this party scene, the levitation bit, and this old dude that's telling girl stories, which is probably someone's boyfriend. Yeah. It's definitely creepy to me now because yeah. he I, does. I love how role. like engaged they are in this whole levitation thing because to me like there's nothing that would seem that that would be cool to me. I would instantly just think that was like the lamest thing possible. It's like let's try levitating somebody because that uh, one chick has like the absolute conviction that it is possible to do this. Well, aren't you the one that loves that whole light as a feather, stiff as a board scene? You love that, you don't you love that? Don't you just like you t- you bring it up all the time? Just I thought because, you'd love this, Wes. They just, made this scene for you. It's all for you, Wes. It's, it's all, all for you. <laughs> Look over here, Wes. <laughs> Just because I like to mention that one scene in the craft a lot doesn't necessarily mean that I'm totally into like light as a feather, stiff as a board. I mean, I was stiff as a board watching the craft, but it had nothing to do with that scene. You're lucky that we're on the first floor. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But it is something that I think would be pretty cool. And in the 80s, you know, we're coming out of that, you know, 
50s, 60s, 70s interest going from like the paranormal into the occult into Satan mm-hmm. because that's where it all ultimately ended up in the 80s, right? So that sort of like party favor of occultism is definitely a holdover from generations beyond and things that they probably saw their parents do because I definitely saw my parents perform seances and stuff at parties, right? Not that I ever saw them do levitation because that is a little off. So, yeah, Yeah. I'm with you in that, that I wouldn't participate in this levitation. I would have participated in uh, table tipping um, and clairvoyance. If somebody claimed to be a medium, I'd have sat in on a seance or Ouija board action Mm -hmm. for sure. That's a little more evil, though, than levitation. It's true. I think that they're, like, as far as evil as this movie is, they didn't want to, like, sit them down and pour a big pentagram of salt and, like, have, like, black candles and shit, right? Yeah, because then you're kind of in, like, ghoulies territory. Yeah. But one of the things that uh, I thought was really funny was the fact that, like, the parents were so anal about all these different restrictions. Of course, the first thing that the kids do is throw a party. Well, Al threw the party. Um, Glenn and Terry didn't have anything to do with it. And it wasn't part of the party necessarily until they got Glenn to levitate. First of all, everyone seems to be pretty fucking chill about the fact that this little boy literally just flew through the air. And they're like, it was an illusion. I'm like, guys... What illusion? He literally... Are you magicians? Yeah, like... Which one like, are The what, old guy, he's a magician. Yeah, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Second thing is this motherfucking kid rips two lights off the fucking uh, walls. Yeah. Like, smashes something and then rips a light right off. A sconce so, and a pot light. Yeah. And so, instantaneously, that... like I was just like, well, I would be freaking out about that. Later on... Um, when uh, when uh, everyone's asleep and uh, and uh, Terry goes downstairs seeing the ghostly image of his mother, uh, which is really good costuming and direction in that particular. It was scene. really cool. She's calling to him, saying that he loves him. She goes to him, and then it, of course turns into a giant dead dog, which is the dog that they asked um, the uh, Glenn's parents made sure to get his medicine. He was very old. I really like that scene actually when he's like embracing his dead mother in this obviously dreamscape kind of like winds blowing and the lights are like coming haloing behind her and stuff like that and when you've seen this in horror movies a million times when someone's embracing the dead person and they pull away you're expecting this maggoty face or whatever. a skeleton or something yeah something scary but no it's a dog it's <laughs> and i a, love that it's just a dead dog terry screams they come to the rescue and then the, the fact that the dog has died has become the main fixture and i was like you know if your parents came home and you said the dog died, they know that the dog was a medication. They know the dog was very old for a dog. So they would, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm so sorry that you guys had to deal with that. Did the dog rip the two lamps out of the ceiling? That was, too? The, that was the thing, though. I was like, why is nobody caring about the fact? Because that's what I would be. Well, also having... later on when um, Glenn's sort of having words with her boyfriend and sort of like reminding, like, hey, something really scary happened last night. He's sort of, in a way, dumbed down the dog dying thing. Mm hmm. And has reminded them, hey, something really scary happened last night. And they totally, like, the levit- suff it off. Yeah, the levitation was an illusion. You're a baby. Like, that's the, the like, that was a very, I thought that was very, um, that was a very authentic reaction. All the older kids jumping down a kid's throat just, and, and dismissing everything he's saying because he's not a teenager. It's yeah. like, you're 10. So you're a baby. You're having a tantrum. You're fucking, like, get over it. You don't know what the hell's going on treating him like a little snot. I'm like, you know, he's making some valid points and he's not saying, he. all he's suggesting is that you call your parents. Like they said, if there was a problem and the dog dying, that's probably not something that you, I would want to do it 
basically so I wouldn't want to deal with the surprise reaction in person. I'd much rather deal with someone over the phone that's like the dog died and they're like, what, how did the dog die? I'm like, I don't know. I'm a doctor. It's dead. Like, <laughs> I'm really glad that they don't jump to more cliches, which I guess maybe me growing up listening to um, metal music and having metal friends and having like non-Christian friends and pagan friends and coming from a not very devoutly Christian household and being allowed to like explore dark comparative religions and things like that. I'm really glad that they didn't just blame the kid in the fucking metal jacket for killing the dog. That's true because they do find Terry with the dog. Yeah. And there and and he doesn't really have an explanation. They don't really ask an explanation because why would you? Because I'm I, so fucking glad. Yeah. I really expected that sort of reaction. I would expect that reaction from a lesser film. Yeah, exactly because in like because they've already planted the seeds of oh, well, this kid likes metal music and he's into satanic ritual and shit like that. No, he's not into satanic ritual, but he's he's into the pageantry of satanic ritual, I would suppose. That is brought forth by the fact that the metal albums are very grandiose and, and he's memorized the speeches and stuff like that. Also, after the dog dies, you're right, there is no... There's not a second where anyone thinks that Terry has anything to do with Thank it. Thank God. Like, and I'm overly protective of that yeah. as, a, as a social, as a subculture. Mm-hmm. Very, very overprotective of that. So I, I definitely notice these things and I like wait for it. Like, don't you dare fucking blame that kid for anything just because he has a fucking back patch. Or because he listens to Sacrifix. <laughs> I definitely want to want to check out and see if this band exists. I know it doesn't, but Yeah. You I want this to. vinyl with the fucking book on summoning demons, for sure. Because <laughs> they're so cute. They're so cute. they got little tails. They do. I love their little faces. And so when, after the aftermath of all this, it's kind of like the fallout of like, well, the dog died. I guess like Al is very adamant about not wanting to call the parents. I believe it's probably because she wants more time without the parents there. And there's a chance if you tell that the dog died that they'll come home a day early. So her attitude is they're all coming home tomorrow the dog's still gonna be dead yeah dogs die he died of old age dogs die it's not a big thing yeah it's not like you burnt down the house or pulled a bunch of lights out of the wall oh wait you did pull lights out of the wall. you did pull lights out of the wall so but there's no threat to them and there's nothing that is going to change the dynamic of them being alone there together at all Mm -hmm. so she's right i totally agree with that yeah now she's taking care of the dog and by taking care of the dog i mean she has apparently given it to her boyfriend i don't understand what the fuck is going on well that's what guys are for you know here's the dead thing deal with it yeah they um, also dig holes in the yard when you need a hole dug not when you don't want a hole dug but when you need one dug you hand the shovel to a guy and they just automatically start digging in the ground yeah uh when i was a a a young man a a teenager a a raccoon died in the uh, we had a a fountain fountain granted we had a pond we had like an artificial pond in the backyard and a raccoon had drowned in it and it was very sad uh, my dad insisted that I was the one to get rid of the dead raccoon that had been sitting in fucking water all fucking night. And let me tell you something, Lydia and listeners. I'm not good with dead things. Like, I'm not good with dead things. And you're like, but Wes, you're a horror fan. Mm, I am. But that's not a dead thing. That's a movie with special effects. When I'm actually put in front of, like, a fucking dead animal, squeamish is a mild way of putting it. And so me trying to get rid of this fucking dead animal probably looked ridiculous because I'm adamant about doing it because I've been given a task, follow through to completion, but I don't want to touch it and I don't really want to look at it. So, 
So if like, it was a wet, dead thing, if any of that wetness would have touched me, I would have fucking lost my shit. But, I mean, I'm pretty good at bucking up and dealing with whatever it is that I need to deal with. Dead things happen rarely, thank God. But I like how this guy is, yeah, he's just, ex- he's expected to take care of the fucking dog. He has a dead dog wrapped in a blanket in his back seat of his car. Yeah, he, like, that was the thing. I was just like, you just tossed, like, 30 pounds of dead meat in your fucking backpack, like, in, your, in the back of your car. You have a blanket... The blanket's not even covering it yeah, properly. Yeah, it's just not like a big blanket. Like, you yeah. can see the dog, and he's just, like, hefting its weight, and he's, like, trying to figure out what to do with this. I think it's movies like this that have erroneously convinced people for eons and centuries that men deal with dead things like this. It's not cool. It's not fair. And, of course, where is he going to put the dog? Yeah. Maybe he's a, he's a dead things kind of guy. He's not a hole-digging kind of guy. <clears throat> But he does find a hole that's already there. This is an interesting aspect of this movie. Um, It's not one thing that happens that opens this gate. It's several things that happen that open this gate that really you would miss some of them. Because it it could be, like, if this was a lesser movie, it would just be one whole scene where they read, like, a passage from a book while the dog died or something. I don't know. But, like, there's all these things that don't seem related and are very subtle in the plot. Terry goes home. His dad is not there. He's just, like, rocking out. Looks like he's never seen a guitar, let alone held one in his entire life. And my favorite comparison would have to be the kid rocking out to We Are Freaks at the beginning of um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It's about the same level of rocking out. Oh, yes. I almost envisioned that, like, the actor playing Terry was told, like, the the director was like, okay, you're jumping on the bed. Air guitar, go crazy. You got fucking metal music going. You're a big metal fan. And he's like, wait, what's a guitar? And he's like, no time. Action. (laughs) (laughs) So he had to, like, imagine in his head what a guitar might feel like. Yeah. It was pretty pretty loosey-goosey. But, yeah. He yeah, was full of energy. He, he was, was rocking out. And then he all of a sudden decided to like recite what was going on. And it reminded him the art of this album and the things that they were saying after, you know, him and Terry during the party had opened up the geode and it was very, it was illuminesque. It was beyond what they were expecting. It was magical almost. And then they wrote down this strange language and then... He, like what the satanic um well it left the on this little etch-a-sketch thing yeah this little pressure it was it's a wax tablet actually gotcha, 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 which gotcha, is gotcha. so esoterically <clears throat> occult oh my god i mean who uses wax tablets wizards wizards this one had big bird on it so big bird is probably the gateway to satan yes definitely have you ever watched that show <laughs> like really watched it i have yeah yeah secret satan everywhere oh my god all of these things combined with the animal sacrifice. Terry reading off this stuff. By the way, Terry's at home. He's not, but he doesn't live far away. And after he's done reciting this, he goes back to Glenn and says that they might have accidentally opened up a cosmic portal to hell. Oops. Whoopsie daisy. And so now they're hell bent to close it. And so they perform a ritual, not understanding that. As they're performing the ritual, and it's very, like... Well, they're really lucky, they think, because there hasn't been any sacrifice, so mm-hmm. we can close this. It's all yeah. good. It's fun. And, and even though the dog died, we got, they like, the dog's been gotten rid of. They don't know that Terry, uh, that Al's boyfriend has buried it in the hole that was already there and sealed it up all pretty nicely. And they have a, they have a big wooden door over it, like, part of the 
remnants of the treehouse is knocked over on top of the hole just to, to keep it closed. And so they can't really see it. And so they perform a very loosey-goosey. And even though, like, Terry has the most information about this satanic ritual, he's not an expert. He's still a kid. Yeah, he's still a kid. And he's gleaned this from liner notes of a metal album. So. Yeah, so he's kind of guessing a lot of it. But he... And he does understand, though, that intent... Intent is the glue that will hold any ritual together. So he knows that if he doesn't have all the words right and everything, if he doesn't say them in the right order or if it's, you know, he knows that his intent is pure. And which is kind of like an advanced knowledge base for a kid, but Mm -hmm. whatever. That was uh, occult practitioners for you for sure. (laughs) He's done a lot of other tertiary reading, I'm sure, outside of the metal album liner notes oh yeah yeah, yeah, for sure hopefully speaking (laughs) but he does know that if he takes this seriously and means what he says it will work um he doesn't know that the body's under there and when al shows back up she's supposed to go uh swimming with everybody but she decided that instead she was actually going to be a good sister because like her friends were kind of shitty to her little brother and he did get scared from the levitation thing so she bought a rocket and they're going to launch the rocket together. So it's, we're kind of back into like, oh, this is kind of cute. Like a uh, cute little uh, kids movie where... Except us as the audience know. Yeah, that... we, we know that something is definitely up because we saw the little latch on the door. Move. And we know that that dog's body was under there. And they've yeah. already said, well, we haven't made any sacrifice, so we're good, right? right. Exactly. After that scene, we're, it's back at night and all the kids are like, um, uh, Al has a couple of friends. Linda and Lori, they're sisters, and they're pretty obnoxious. But they're, but like Al seems to be friends with them. They're hanging out. It's a big sleepover. Terry basically just like lives over here. I'm guessing it's one of those friendships, which I had a lot of those when I was a kid. I definitely had like friends' houses that I was over at constantly, always there for dinner, like always just like, you know, just being a little kid with my blonde bowl cut, just <laughs> running around, <laughs> eating hot dogs at every barbecue. Yeah, yeah, just just hot dogs. What do you want for your birthday? Was well, hot dogs always. Anyway, um, it's cute. That's so cute. It's very Dennis the Menace. <laughs> I did have a slingshot for a period of time. Oh my god! Did you wear coveralls and you have it in the back pocket and the stripy red and white shirt? Uh, I mean, or you were more of a track pants and jacket with like astronaut patches kind of kid so there literally exists a picture of me with a bright with a with like when i was a kid my hair was almost white it was so blonde like children of the corn style i'm literally wearing a striped red shirt i have like overalls on oh my gosh it's like the picture exists i'll get my mom to find it and i'll post it but i'm fucking Please just do i'm just fucking dennis the menace like i'm literally just dennis the menace <laughs> and this is your own natural caught in the wild this is you being you weren't dressed up as Dennis and Menace. You just were. I don't know if I was... Like, it's it was an official photo. So, like, I don't know. I was... It just happened to be wearing that day. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Mm. My nephew ends up looking like Dennis and Menace quite often as well. Or one of the children of the corn. Take your pick. Yeah. That's the thing with, like, little blonde boys. No one ever, like, talks about this, the, the pain of, like, always just being a children of the corn or a village of the damned kid. Or Dennis the Menace. I had a friend that had three blonde kids, and every time, like, the first time I met them, I was just like, oh, my God, it's like Village of the Damned. <laughs> and their dad just looked at me like, hey, don't say that. Don't let them think that. <laughs> and it was like, what, man? You're the one with, like, creepy blonde kids with giant blue eyes. <laughs> ay, ay. Um, <laughs> when night falls, we are basically treated to... Satan. 
Satan. The first real big satanic shit going on. Demons, man. Fucking demons. Because Glenn feels like there's something wrong and, and needs and wants um, Al to check on Terry. She goes slowly towards Terry's bed. He's sleeping in Glenn's room. And they're like, wake up, wake up. You're not waking up. And then Terry is standing behind them. Oh, what's in the bed? It's the dog. It's yeah. the dead dog. And then out from underneath the bed comes these giant rubbery arms that attempt to pull Al underneath there for who knows what. Well, I mean, we do know at the very least probably to take her away for a human sacrifice because that is what they need. The demons need two human sacrifices. Now, the demons manifest themselves uh, in a variety of different ways, but primarily they're just like these little pygmy-looking things. I love them. They they're, are cute. They are very, very cute. This uh, is done with a combination. It's mostly forced perspective, which is how this movie is shot. Um, these are people in suits. Yeah, that's why they look so good. You know what I mean? People yeah. would be like, well, damn, this is like bang up stop motion action. And it's like, yeah, but no. There is stop motion periodically within the film. One of the arm scenes where the arms turn into like little maggots or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that is definitely stop motion. And of course, the demon at the end is stop motion. But for the most part, this is done with uh, all practical effects. Uh, some of them are puppetries, but predominantly it was uh, a bunch of young adults apparently in uh, scenes. And they were either... Um, it was either forced perspective, they were rotoscoped in, or things of that nature. Yeah, which is a good combination to use, you know? <clears throat> Everyone nowadays would probably talk to something like the blending of physical and digital effects. Yeah. How to effectively blend them. <clears throat> this is a great example of blending what they had to work with, many different styles, old and new, to bring these creatures to life. And they did a very, very good job, mm -hmm. if you ask. This is far beyond Golden Voyage of Sinbad, of course, only in that it's created at a later date. With mm -hmm. different techniques mm -hmm. available and it still kind of beats out say goro in mortal Kombat. if mm -hmm. you want to talk about like stop motion mm -hmm. this uh the the, the 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 effects were handled by a uh, random uh, randall william cook uh who originally had visions of harryhausen when he wanted to do this harryhausen uh anybody who knows anything about stop motion knows who harryhausen is um or you've definitely even if you don't know his name you've seen his movies or you've at least seen a clip of them on youtube or you've seen things that he definitely influenced anything by tim burton anything by tim burton so um but like harryhausen was a, a a bit of an oddity because he did it all himself he was a guy in a room and sometimes he'd have assistance but predominantly he was just a guy in a room that did it over the course of a bajillion hours and everyone was like you leave harryhausen to do his thing we'll have a movie by the end of it don't worry about it so uh randall william cook thought it was going to be kind of the same thing but so much easier and quicker to just put a kid in a suit man <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And... especially for the facial features you want to be getting from mm -hmm. these creatures because they do emote very much and that is why i would like one as a pet not two or three because then they might cause too much trouble mm -hmm. but just one by itself i would love to have mm -hmm. so um it, it was really really uh cool effects and it really really works well and these uh, these little guys, you might think that individually they're not that dangerous, but there's like fucking 12 of them, 20 of them, 30 of them. Yeah, we're getting into Gulliver's travels here. Yeah, so totally. the, so and, and they all work together. They're all really trying to like pull people. What they're looking for, and we find this out very quickly, is that they're looking for two human sacrifices. Terry's is going to tell us this much. Well, they're trying to figure out how to protect the house because they lose power. And with all, with um. With him and Glenn, their sister, and her sister's two uh, girlfriends in there as well. And 
everyone's sort of screeching and howling and running around. It's a really great scene, really good tension builder. And you're like, oh my God, here we go. We're getting pretty uh, uh, horrific. We have uh, them trying to leave the front of the house. Glenn immediately sees his parents. And, Which and, we know it's a trick. We just know because at this point we can trust nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, his father grabs him by the throat. And in what I would say is easily the most horrific scene in this entire film it's Glenn pulling on his father's face, which then bursts and just all this white pus and goo and slime comes up, like almost like in Demons, very yeah. Demons-esque. And the thing's head just drops and it's just like this rotten green black pile of fucking shit. And it's just about at this point where I would think as a parent, like I've, there had to have been parents in the theater at this moment that just thought, oh, fuck. Yeah. Because like that's going to give someone nightmares. Because, you know, you you would think, well, maybe I can bring my, like, seven-year-old. Thank this. God, though, because this is if this is being sold to the harder horror crowd mm-hmm. who had rented it hoping for a hard horror film and got what they've gotten up to this point, which is very, you know, Stephen King it. It's a story about kids, mm-hmm. right? It's not really about the demons and the monsters up until this point at all. So it'd be like, okay, I thought this was a horror film, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is what they came there for. So Mm -hmm. if they needed their horror wad blown, at least they got it here in the scene. Because it is, like, really scary and very gory. Yeah, and when what Terry... uh, Terry is now their expert. They're like, everyone wants to know, how do you know all this stuff? He's like, from a a metal album. And he's got a book with him. And he's trying to basically figure out how to close it. He thinks that, like... Originally, he thought playing the message on the album backwards gave you an op- gave, showed you how to close the gate. He then copied scripture. Well, th- they had backwards talking on all like all good metal albums do, mm-hmm. especially in the eighties, had backwards talking to tell you how to raise the demons, right? So when yeah, so when their original plan doesn't work, now he thinks that what they need to do is basically go back to the hole, close it, while banishing the demons. And they basically just need to get to the backyard and do it that way. They can't call for help because the phone erupts and melts. It's a really cool effect. And I'm surprised that that didn't stick with me. Like, I'm surprised that the melting man's face and the pus didn't stick with me. Watching part two, I remembered a lot more of the pus gross, really fucking gross scene. But I didn't remember that at all. It didn't stick with me. And the melting phone didn't stick with me at all. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm really surprised, too, because they're very well done. And I really doubt I covered my eyes because I wasn't an eye-covering kind of kid, really. Yeah, me either. Yeah. Um, but the, doesn't the the album just disintegrate, catch fire, and fucking? It, it does. Yeah, it does. So he so, has he has a secondary book that he seems to be pulling a lot of this information from. I don't know if it's like a satanic bible or if it's like just something that he mm, got. The satanic bible wouldn't be any help. In their estimation, not an actual satanic bible. Oh, okay. Not sure exactly what the bible. Something like, by the mad Abdul Al Zared. Yeah, something. something like yeah. that. Some something sort like of that. Necronomicon. Yeah, yeah. He, Ish book. Yeah, like something that he got at Barnes and Noble. I'm no, no, no. Like I'm just saying that like he has access to this book, and he ends up. Terry ends up falling into the hole and losing the chapter that he needs to write, or sorry, to read from to finish off the last of the ritual. Now uh, Al's friends have completely hidden inside. They've they've seen some. This is. I'll go back to this in a second because they've seen some shit and some things and some stuff, and they're terrified. They're screaming. And they're hiding in a closet now. And when 
Terry is down there. He is getting bitten and accosted by these little demons that the, like the hole is just full of them, right? And this hole is huge now. Like it's fucking super deep. It's a huge tunnel. Yeah, and it's go. You know, you keep following it. It'll go all the way to hell. And he eventually, thanks to a little quick thinking by Al grabbing some debris and some rope, uh, they managed to get him out of there. Now he can't seem to find the book anymore, and. Well, he can't find the chapter anymore, so instead he just throws the entire book out of frustration, which seems to seal up. It wasn't up. a Bible. It was a Bible. But like a Christian Bible? Yeah. They were reading passages from the Bible. Oh. Just random passages. Because they had a conversation about, like, well, what part do I read? Just any part will do. Which, kind of, sure, okay. And I joked about, like, what if they get to the part about how what animals you should or shouldn't eat? Really boring part of the begats. How's that going to help oh, you at yeah, all? that's true. You no know, fish. Anything out of the Torah probably wouldn't help you. You're looking for, like, later Bible fodder. But, yeah, they end up just throwing the Bible in there. Yeah, it closes everything up, and then the lights come back on, and you think we're okay. They go back to their friends. Here's the thing. When they notice the front door is open, and, oh, shit, it's just a trio of boys in there, and one's, like, her boyfriend or would-be boyfriend, I suppose, and the other two, the other girls' uh, uh, gentlemen friends, and the girls who were previously terrified, who saw a man's face erupt into pus and fall off and like saw demonic shit and screaming shit and like a cosmic portal being closed. Their now high tone problem is that Al wants them all the, wants the guys to leave. And they invited them there though. Yeah. Well, I guess if they're going to brush off the whole levitation thing, they might as well brush off the, decaying man in the front yard that was not their dad it's fucking crazy yeah but anyway al just has had enough and she's like okay everybody get the fuck out you guys too everybody get everybody out um i guess terry can stay because he doesn't really count as company i guess but everyone else definitely counts as company get the fuck out so they do and i guess it's all back to normal they're all like fucking like dirty and shit and al's gonna go clean up and the boys couldn't possibly sleep for a week so they're just gonna like watch a movie and i was wondering what they were watching could you figure it out? It looked like a Mondo thing to me. It did, me. too, and I wasn't sure at all. Yeah. Like, Man from Green River or something. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what the fuck they were watching. Yeah. It's probably something they shouldn't be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? But this is where the man in the wall thing happens. Because all of a sudden, as they're just, like, hanging out, the wall, the, the, the drywall just splits. And this zombie basically comes out. And he's a work close. And this goes back to a story that Terry literally tells Glenn about. A man being in the wall. Like way in the beginning. And it's almost something that you think would be a little too random. Yeah. But it's not. And it definitely fits. I found the movie House has the same sort of thing where things seem apparently very, very random. Mm -hmm. But aren't entirely. No, exactly. Especially when you look at like the paintings in House and stuff like that. Exactly. Eventually it's like a clue to how all this works. Yeah. Um, When this body comes out, I love Terry's reaction. He was like, I thought I just made that up. <laughs> but it seems to be like the demons seem to have at least a little bit of like they've been watching the house or like they have a little bit of an idea about the things that Terry's been saying. And so they use this as now a way to capture somebody because we do know they need two human sacrifices. Well, guess what? This thing basically grabs Terry. They try to fight him off. And he's a very well-constructed zombie, too. I like the way that he bursts out of the wall. He mm. seems to have huge superhuman strength and can just move within the walls and become one with them, which is very, very cool to me. And his makeup's very, very good, too. So mm. he's a very effective zombie-type mm. person. I, 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 He's probably just the living dead 
right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily a zombie because he doesn't really have zombie traits mm-hmm. other than being a living dead. Craig Reardon was the person that was responsible for the practical effects, uh, the makeup effects on that uh, zombie. He had said that um, one of the things that, that the story never specifically called the man in the wall a zombie. But he said when you're thinking about a dead man coming to life, he says you can't help but think of a zombie. Yeah. But what he didn't want to do was the same types of makeup effects that were all the rage, like that, particularly things like when you think about zombies back in those days, you're thinking about Day of the Dead. Yeah. You're thinking about uh, Dawn of the Dead. Like you're thinking like the high ridges around the eyes to make them look sunken in and just like the same type of pallor. So what he wanted to do was something that was conveying the idea that this person was not alive, but not trying to make it look like a Romero zombie. So he said the, so the, the effect that they have in the film was what they came up with consciously trying to make it Yeah, probably different. having a little more influence from mummification as well. Cause he would have been mummified in the wall and he was mm-hmm. like covered in plaster and stuff, which, worked with his workman persona because mm-hmm. he was some sort of worker that was just left in the wall but um they did kind of hit that between zombie and mummy look which is really really good so when this man in the wall eventually does uh pull terry in now it's up to glenn and his sister to try to help terry now there's a really cool effect that everybody talks about in this scene when eventually al um I guess defeats the man in the wall by throwing a boombox at him. He falls forward and then he immediately scatters into a bunch of the little demons, showing you that these things are able to at least compile together to form different things. Yeah, because we've seen that they're sort of made out of their own like weird dark matter as it is when one of them loses an arm way at the beginning and then it just sort of explodes into a bunch of little tiny gray leeches or something and they mm-hmm. wiggle away. So same sort of idea except on a larger scale. And when this zombie explodes into... Uh, a good handful of these little minions it's the same sort of thing how they behave i i love the minions for that actually Mm -hmm. it's very cool now also the the man in the wall is eventually going to become like the big their big muscle because i guess you know the demons are little people so they can't really like it's hard to to capture people and drag them away to do uh, to do what they need to. It's kind of cool. The minions can't don't seem to be able to move in the wall, but the man that was that died in the wall can move within the walls, mm-hmm. so he can access them in any room. Where the minions would have to like get into the room and mm-hmm. gain access, like any other earthly creature. For some reason, mm-hmm. their little powers don't extend to be able to just like go through walls. They have to like gnaw their way through doors and stuff. Mm-hmm. But this man can traverse in behind the walls and then just bust out of walls. So they have this this power of locomotion through being able to become this zombie man, right? Mm -hmm. It's really cool when you think about it way too fucking much. As we tend to do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so the the cool thing is that uh, this man in the wall eventually does get his hands on Al. And previously in the film, we're told that one of the things that could probably defeat this evil is um, basically love. (laughs) Like, uh... Uh, every time, man. Every time. Can't think of something that will defeat the big bad. Love, definitely. Mm-hmm. This time, love being, uh, I guess, sort of uh, implied to be, um, throughout the entire movie, like the rocket that destroyed the top of the house that made Glenn not able to just shoot rockets whenever he pleased, is believed that he it was tossed away. And what, he, what Glenn later finds out is that his sister had captured it's like captured that sounds dramatic her sister had instead of allowing it to get thrown out she hid it away and was probably going to give it to him in a later time but even though she had even told him no 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 it got thrown away it's gone it's actually not gone and she left a little note saying that you know 
I love you or some shit like that. Yeah, I love you, don't tell mom and dad. Or... Yeah. I don't even know if that note said I love you because there was a different note attached to a rocket that said love on it. Okay. And that was from Terry. Oh. It was a happy birthday. I love Terry. It was a rocket. So there was like two different rockets with the power of love invested within them. Well, we, we have we have our, well, we need these rocket loves. These are the rockets of love. Love and rockets? Yeah. You're getting into some 80s fucking music. Hell yeah. Yeah. And love and rockets. But it has to be love and light. So Oprah fans mm-hmm. rejoice. Oh, hell yeah. Now, when, when um, Al is eventually taken, that is when the demons have everything they need to do to summon the big demon that like the, the 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 being of unimaginable size and power it's a metal kid's final form it and now it was never obvious to me that that demon itself was terry it's not entirely no you see him going through his transformation in the wall yeah where, where al stabs him in the eye but it's the way that the demon interacts with him. Mm. The demon doesn't want to hurt him. That's Why true. Why do you think? Look at him. He's got six fucking eyes and a bunch of arms. He looks like he's out to hurt people. He's mm-hmm. there, sent there to hurt people. Mm-hmm. He is a demon. Mm. A demon. That's what demons do. But instead he kind of pats him on the head and is like, I don't want to hurt you, little fella. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's not a typical demon reaction. So I think it's like definitely Terry. Yeah, that, no, like that's a good point. When you pointed it out to me, I was like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense actually. Or at least this thing uh, being compiled was like the his, the ingredients for this big demon were contained Terry. Contained Terry. Yeah. And so th- these these sequences of, of Glenn finding it really cool. The house is completely torn to shreds, um, and Glenn doesn't really know how to handle it because after the demon leaves him alone and vanishes again. Like, he just sees, like, this portal to hell that is just, like, billowing out smoke and energy and power. And it seems... And he gets that scene. He's like, what do I even do? The only person that remotely knew what to do is gone now. My sister's gone. I'm by myself. My parents are not here. And... and All he can do is plead with it to come back and take him instead. Mm-hmm. Not only because Terry would probably be able to close the hole and save them all, but he just saw everyone he loved and everyone that loved him taken away from him. Hmm. And he's going to get in so much trouble because the house is a mess. It really is. Yeah. It's really, really well done, though. This uh, portal to hell is way better than any CG piece of shit that I've seen in a million other movies that they open portals to hell. Hmm. And it's the way that they're using the fast-moving smoke and the air rushing. Um, Very, very, very well done. No, yeah, absolutely. For, like, mid-'80s. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It looks like fantastic. Particularly when this movie had a budget of like like two million bucks, two and a half million bucks. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fucking uh, impressive. Yeah, especially when for like, a Canadian film. For a Canadian film, and not only that, but like big movies at the time, forty, fifty million dollars. That would have been a massive budgeted movie back in those days. This movie is dealing with a fraction of that. Is on par with movies that have tens of millions of dollars put into them. Yeah. Very much so. It's really cool. It's just the craftsmanship and the love and the attention that you can give a film like this and and see like, yeah, like budget's important, but it's not everything. So poor Glenn's fucked. He has no Bible. He has no friends. He has no sister. He has a portal to hell in his front yard. Mm-hmm. Then what? He basically has... Rockets. Rockets. <laughs> he's got rockets. He's got his rocket of love that he's going to fire. That sounds dirty. Um, he's got, he's got his rocket of love that he's going to, um, insert, wait, <laughs> yeah. no, wait, he's got his rocket, he's got his 
uh, rocket of love that he's going to penetrate Terry mm, with. I don't know. No good? No. No, shit. Not quite. We can think of another less sexual, less penis and vagina thrusting kind of Gotcha. Let me just like see if I can straddle you this ever problem. You your dick a rocket? No. I mean, no, but I've never also like sung about my dick in a song. I feel like if I was trying to sing about my dick, I might call it a rocket. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, launch. 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 He's going to launch his rocket. Do you, does that work for you? I mean, I guess. Is that sexual? Yeah. We're dealing with like, what, 10 to 12 year old boys here. We can't well, don't make be sexual. It, don't make it gross okay. by reminding me how young everyone is. Now, when... Um, he gently places his rocket. In... Yeah. Ooh. Okay, sorry. But get some purple pros on this rocket shit. No. So... Of course the matches keep blowing out when he's trying to light the fucking rocket because that's what horror movies do. This is the equivalent of trying to fucking get the key in the keyhole and start the car. Yeah. The car won't start. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where somebody literally drops the entire set of keys. That's always like, I'm like, well, all right. Well, they've already done that. Drop the entire box of fucking shotgun shells all over the floor. They've done that. Oh, uh, yeah. It's not as noticeable because it doesn't make you roll your eyes and groan. Every, even these like really typical little horror tropes that pop up in this film aren't like eye roll worthy because they're done in context right same with this match is blowing out it does create this tension um and it raises the stakes as well no yeah absolutely um when the demon basically gets a hold of glenn for the final time he manages to fire the rocket and it's weird because like the rocket doesn't like burst through it it seems to sort of just melt into it like absorb into the body i don't know if that was like a limitation to the special effects or if that was just what they decided was going to happen well i think that because this is he's on a second rocket by this point and it's an electrical rocket so it's got a little more power behind it this is the bigger rocket the big white one yeah yeah big white rocket oh my god just slides on in there um now you have fucking ruined my brain for this rocket thing i think because it was that you know, now it's imbued with the power of love and whatever that it does just slice through and sink into the demon the way that like a hot blade through butter, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is, it's kryptonite. Mm-hmm. If it was just a regular rocket with no love attached, it would have like done what rockets do or bounced off of his impenetrable demon chest. <laughs> when... um when it does happen it's a really cool lighting effect it's like erupting inside of terry the power of love and glenn basically is going to try to escape the house the house explodes and then terry is like sort of like terry glenn is sort of flipped out of the front door it looks fucking great there's quite a few little tiny uh, techniques used in this that will remind you a lot of evil dead (laughs) a couple rainy-esque camera follow shots and like this too just a couple just enough to make me be like good comedy horror shots on you um it also makes me want to watch phantasm for some more scary dark demon minion action right Mm -hmm. but yeah phantasm is a good flick Fly number two. Yeah. Where's your warning fly? Uh, um, this is one of the things where I think that like if, if producers or if studio heads had any notes that I could see the seams where the old script really is uh, 
there, but with a little bit of seams on it. Not quite smudged in enough to the new material. Yeah, because one when 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 Glenn is looking out onto the the the, the portal of hell, I would think that this would be the scene where people are getting dragged out of their beds and like you could see the demons just attacking everyone. Yeah. Um, you could cut that for budgetary reasons because I'm sure this portal costs fucking enough money as it is, let alone filming scenes of like demons attacking and killing people there seems to be some other stuff maybe missing here i'd like to see the cutting room floor for this yeah. one because not only seeing the, the the seems where you could have filled in a lot of the original intent for this film there seems to be a few harsh cuts where everything is edited so very smoothly in this entire film it's not till this end portion where you know there would be different ideas happening and i even think there'd be more like neighborhood death happening from the middle onward mm. i really really do um but like here in particular the editing gets a little rough in a couple of scenes and I, I i'm really curious as to why yeah i i would be interested to, to see that too um this this aspect of the film i'm not gonna say it's controversial i just feel like it's almost like the 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 super happy ending version. And this is my problem with the, a problem. This was my th my thoughts when I first saw the Gate Two. Now remember, I saw the Gate Two first. And I had never seen the Gate One until I was older, and but I saw the Gate Two when it came out in like ninety ninety one or something like that. And I watched that movie a dozen times because it was on the movie network and I happened to like it, and so I just kept watching it every time it was on. And when I and one of the things that I was like, well, that's a very cheery ending. But as a kid, I was like, oh, I'm happy because the characters I like survived. In the first gate movie, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Both Terry and Al, once that demon has been vanquished, just sort of come out of a closet. Yeah, they emerge unscathed. Yeah, as well as the dog. Yeah. The dog is also alive. So we're all... What survives in gate two? The hamster. Which was like eviscerated. Yeah. The hamster was absolutely destroyed. And by the way, I even thought like, well, okay, so the hamster's alive. No one knows that hamster's alive. No one knows that hamster's there. It's like a bird's just going to eat it. Like a hawk's going to swoop down and just like grab that hamster. Yeah. This is, this dog died of old age. So it wasn't yeah. like it was like used as a ritual sacrifice. It was used as a ritual sacrifice, but like but it was a how accidental. Yeah. yeah. I love accidental rituals. It's hilarious to me. Yeah. Um, but like. So it's it's not as much of a stretch really as the hamster, but it is like, yeah, it's way too nice, neat, tied up with a bow. Here you are, MPAA, maybe have your blessing. Yeah, it really seems to me like that was tacked on, like, and everyone lives. Or maybe parents in the theater going like, oh, I don't know about that face melting scene. They're like, oh well, the dog lives, so I guess uh, Junior's not gonna have nightmares. Yeah, it's like you already have the dog died, the face melting scene. You have Terry possessed, getting stabbed in the eye. You have a, a, a cadaver walking around, missing portions of his face. You have um, Glenn getting an eye in his hand. And yeah, then we glossed over that. We entirely, did, didn't we? we did, because I've never really understood it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me how he's so, starting to get like possessed or something. Like I, I don't really know what was going on. Again, that was also like. Like Army of Darkness has that eye scene, but this time uh, uh, Glenn just straight up stabs his eye hand. Which is a very 
a very tough decision for a kid to make. Oh, like a very this, brash decision. This 11-year-old kid like just like grabs a piece of glass yeah. and stabs an eyeball in his hand. Which it's, has got to feel weird. Oh, my God. And he probably saw it coming. <laughs> but I think like overall when you're thinking, when you're talking about The Gate, I think that The Gate is like an, is an important movie. It was an important movie that came out at just the right time in 1987. I think that... Movies like this that came about in the 1980s and people wanted to make films like this because of the success of Goonies, because of the success of Monster Squad, because of the success of It, uh, because of movies like this that starred kids had science fiction or horrific elements into it. This was what was putting asses in the seats. Not It wasn't the predominant thing putting asses in the seats because obviously the 80s had some extremely huge and successful movies that came out in it. But this was something that definitely seems to be a genre of film that has gone away with the exception of now they've done stranger things as a TV, as an eight episode TV series on Netflix and everyone same reaction is like, where's this been for the last 25 years? So it's be... been hiding on the aisles of your mom and pop video shop that you let close. Oh, sad face it also features some nice occult action that isn't necessarily blamed by that doesn't actually have like a subculture that is blamed for its existence mm -hmm. it's just generally accepted that this they used to dominate the world and that hell was always going to be there and i sort of like that position and if anything terry is instead of this is your fault He's an asset because yeah. of the fact that he is into this and stuff. And he understands this stuff yeah. and accepts it. Because if he didn't, if he wasn't their friend, if he didn't know, if they didn't know, they would never know. They would never know anything was going on until it was too late. Yeah, they would have accidentally opened a portal to hell and had everyone get destroyed. Mm -hmm. And they would have all died and the demons would have ruled the earth. And we can't have that. No, God, no. So what do we got next for? Demons ruling the earth. Oh, shit, son. No, I'm lying. I wish. Um... I was going to guess House. Is it House? Yeah. I was positive it was House, but no. But I almost do not feel the need to apologize because we're doing The Gate, House, 1408, Cujo, Jeepers Creepers. So we're going to be going through a little bit of a Stephen King first, totally unrelated to Stranger Things. We came up with this list like quite some time ago. I know, yeah. Yeah, and we've had these movies, not necessarily in this order, but they found their organic dead air order. Mm-hmm just recently and it seems to work very very well with our talking today about things like stranger things and stephen king and groups of children and just that sort of like very relatable writing style house will be something that i'm excited to get into because there aren't a lot of films and you pointed this out that deal with uh post-traumatic stress disorder in yeah, horror that's right which is maybe something that people really should explore especially now when it's so much more predominant which it really wasn't talked about the same way outside of shell shock in vietnam war yeah. world war one and two outside of shell shock and perhaps hallucinations post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't really addressed at all so i'm very interested to revisit that in the same way that i got to revisit gate going into 1408 and kudo I'm excited. <laughs> As well you should be. Hmm. You don't sound excited. No, I'm excited. I'm interested to 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 watch House because it's a lot closer to a comedy than I feel like you're uh, comfortable with. I know. I know, right? <laughs> I know. Prepare to see me chortle. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>